Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. This episode of Other People is brought to you by the UCLA Extension Writers Program, the largest open enrollment creative writing and screenwriting program in the nation. At UCLA Extension, you can take courses in novel writing, short fiction, memoir, personal essay, poetry, playwriting, writing for the youth market, publishing, you name it. And you can also take screenwriting courses, both feature film and television. The various classes are taught by top-level instructors who have actually walked the walk, publishing books and producing films and television shows. The program features almost 500 courses annually, both online and on-site, at beginner, intermediate, and advanced levels, with evening, weekend, and daytime options as well. The program also features certificate programs in feature film, television writing, fiction, and creative nonfiction, manuscript and script consultations, writing competitions, free events, nine-month master classes, mentorships, scholarships, and friendly and knowledgeable advisors. For more information, call 310-825-9415. That's 310-825-9415 or visit them on the web at uclaextension.edu slash writers or check them out on Facebook and the Twitter. This is a writer's program. You can learn to write better. Go and do it. Oh my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Big, big, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible, you know, it was like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. All right, everybody, here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is a program. This is something you listen to. This is uh, a very nice little exchange we have going here. Thank you for tuning in. I appreciate it. Uh, what am I doing? I'm doing probably what you would imagine I'm doing. I'm sitting here at a desk in my office. The office is uh, roughly 15 by 15 or 15 by 10. I don't know. I haven't measured it recently. There are pictures on the wall, uh, and then there's a lamp. There's a printer that is no longer working that needs to be replaced. There is uh, a cup, a, a chalice of sorts, a, a steel, what do you call it, a stein, and it is filled with writing utensils and a pair of scissors. There's all the normal stuff that you would expect to be on my desk in front of me right now, and I'm simply describing it as a way to fill time. Uh, otherwise, what? Uh, the internet working, thinking about the normal stuff, thinking about being creative, and then you know how the internet factors into that, and how I should probably avoid the internet and maybe work somewhere where the internet isn't, so that it doesn't you know impede 
upon the creative process, but then also at the same time thinking and kind of playing point counterpoint and telling myself that maybe the internet doesn't necessarily have to be a negative thing. So why keep fighting it? It's the water we swim in. Why not make it work for you? Why not focus on what's good about it and employ that in the service of your art and so on. So, you know, excuse me, for example, I went to the internet uh, and I was on, I was sitting there thinking about this and I did a random Google search. Uh, I was thinking to myself, maybe there could be a, a kind of literary art that is derived entirely from spontaneous Google searches. Maybe there is some sort of serendipitous thing out there uh, waiting to happen that could be generated by a uh, conscious engagement with cyberspace. And so uh, I thought to myself, maybe uh, it could lead to unexpected insight and enjoyment. That is honestly the uh, phrase that occurred in my mind. And so I then Googled unexpected insight and enjoyment. And uh, the first thing that turned up on the Google search, much to my surprise and delight, was a Tumblr devoted to the work of Ralph Steadman, uh, who is, of course, the cartoonist, uh, the illustrator, the artist who uh, illustrated Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. So his work is very uh, celebrated. It has a very distinct style and so on and so forth. So I was reading this Tumblr. I was looking at some of Steadman's work. Uh, There was like a a snippet from an interview where... uh, you know, people were asking him questions. There were quotes. One of the quotes was, uh, evil is always devising more corrosive misery through man's restless need to exact revenge out of his hate, which seemed pretty heavy. Uh, and then uh, this snippet from the interview, the interviewer says, uh, any last thoughts? And uh, Ralph Steadman says, the only thing of value is the thing I cannot say, Wittgenstein, which, uh, which now makes me feel stupid for saying anything. Uh, or makes me want to be silent or something. Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. So my guest today is Joshua Hankin. He is the author of several books, the most recent of which is a novel. It's called The World Without You. Uh, It is generating lots of buzz, lots of critical acclaim. And uh, it is now available from Pantheon. So uh, I figure we should just get to it. Let's do this. Let's have a uh, podcast experience together, you and me. I I grew up in in Manhattan and I lived there until I was 18. Um, But then I was away for a while. I um, I lived in Jerusalem for a year. Then I was in Boston for four years and Berkeley and San Francisco for four years and Arbor for eight years. And then I came back to New York. So I've been in Brooklyn now the last 12 years. Oh, okay. But I had a big chunk of time in college towns in between. 
Okay, and then were those all teaching jobs, or you were going to school? Uh, I mean, I was, a co- I was at college for four years, and then afterwards, I was, who knows what I was doing. I was starting to write fiction. I was teaching for Stanley Kaplan. I was, I was living, like, a mid-20s Berkeley life. Um, and then I moved to Ann Arbor to get my MFA, and I, and I stayed there to teach for, like, six years after I got my MFA. And then I came back to New York, and I taught at Trinity College in Hartford for a year. And then I was at Sarah Lawrence for nine years, and the last four years I've been running Brooklyn College's Fiction MFA. Wow. Wow. So that's like, that's, I didn't realize you'd moved around that much. So, I have, yeah. Um, okay. So let's talk about uh, growing up in New York, because the, mm-hmm. I have, you know, that seems, uh, it's like endlessly fascinating to me. <laughs> As a kid, you know, a kid who grew up in the Midwest and these sort of, mm-hmm. uh, you know, by comparison, sleepy towns. Like, what was it like? Like, what part of Manhattan were you in, first of all? I grew up at, my, my dad taught at Columbia Law School for 50 years. So I grew up in university housing in Morningside Heights, right near Columbia. And actually, one of my first memories uh, was when I was four years old, um, my mom taking me to nursery school, crossing College Walk on Columbia campus, and we were turned back, you know, by the campus riots in the 60s. And so that was my snow day. And I think I sort of had a romanticized, I think one of the reasons I ended up in Berkeley for a few years, I had this romanticized idea about the 60s. But, you know, I grew up in New York. I grew up in New York at a time that people didn't grow up in the people of the upper middle class didn't grow up in the city that much. Um, you know, a lot of people of my generation, their, their parents moved to the suburbs, and the suburbs were definitely not for my parents. And um, Why so? I just, uh, I just think they thought they were boring. Yeah. And my dad was an academic, and I just think he found the city to be a more vibrant place. I and mean, he grew up in the lower... He, he was the son of a of an Orthodox rabbi. My, my father was born in Russia, in, in Belarus, and came over when he was five. And my grandfather lived in the Lower East Side of Manhattan back in the days when, you know, it wasn't a place to go, go to a club. It was sort of, you know, the Lower East Side of, of York. And my grandfather lived in New York for 50 years and never learned English. And I used to think my dad was a city kid. He was an immigrant. And I, he wasn't upwardly mobile in the sense, I don't think his, his vision of things was to have a in a car and a house in the suburbs. Um, so it was clear he was staying in New York. And my mom was all, grew up in the, in the Bronx. She was a city kid, too. And I've, I've always been a city kid. I, mean, I find the suburbs really, I don't know, I, I, just, I think I, I would really die there. Well, no, uh, I, I was raised in the suburbs, but now I've lived in Los Angeles for like the past 12 years. And I think about the possibility of uh, living in the suburbs again, and I feel like it would be too sleepy for me. Like I sort of have become a city person, and I, I didn't necessarily expect that to happen, but that seems to be what's happened. Yeah, I think that, that happens a lot. My, my, my wife grew up in the suburbs of New Jersey, and then she went to college and graduate school in New York, and she's basically never left. And I think, you know, people get used to being in the city. And also, I mean, there was this article in the Times, I think it was in the business section the other day, about sort of the move of the affluent to, to places to places that are more walkable, uh, even, even if they're not in big cities, that there are all these towns across the country that are very appealing to the more affluent because they're walkable. Um, so I think there's a move in that direction. But I guess LA is a place where that is a big city where it isn't that walkable. Um, I just I, I wish it was bikeable. I wish it was more right. bikeable. It seems like like with Los Angeles, especially because of the weather, it seems like we should have really great bike paths leading you all over the city, and then we should also have more and better sidewalk cafes than any other city in the yeah. country. And we don't. It's, um, it's like 72 all the time. We don't have... You know. <laughs> uh, I, I, mean, I think New York has the same problem with biking. I mean, there are, there are bike lanes in New York, but they're really not... 
they're really not that safe. I mean, they're, they're basically, you know, you're competing with the traffic and they aren't, you know, the bike lanes are, aren't everywhere. I mean, my family, my, my wife and daughters and I went to Montreal last summer and we were just blown away by the bike lanes they have throughout that city. I think it really makes a huge difference. I have friends who live in Boulder, Colorado, and there are incredible bike lanes there. That's where I went, so to, I, that's where I went to college. Okay, so you know, so you know about good bike lanes. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. But what was Montreal like? That's a city that, that I also want to visit that I have yet to go to. I thought I thought it was an incredible city. I mean, I, we've been there a few times. You know, it's only a six-hour drive from New York, and it really feels it's like a European city. I mean, people talk about it as a bilingual city, but that's that's really not true, except for a couple of neighborhoods. It's really a French-speaking city, and so you essentially feel like you're in Europe, but but you just you can drive there. Um, and I just found it to be a terrific city. It's, it's a, you know, there's a real sense of the outdoors and it's very cosmopolitan and people are very friendly and we did a house swap there and we were there for a couple of weeks and we really liked it oh wow okay so speaking of cosmopolitan like growing up in new york and having parent you know your father's teaching at columbia uh and then your mother was a, a lawyer correct is that right yeah she is a lawyer yep. okay so like you, you had uh an academic and uh very educated and sophisticated uh, set of parents, at least by most standards. And so, what was what was like? What was it like in your your house growing up? Like, did you have siblings? Or was it like a? Uh, do you feel like you had a more, uh, I don't know, cultured or highbrow childhood than most people? Or do you know what I'm saying? I, yeah, yeah, I guess I don't know. I mean, it, as it's true with everyone, you know, you, it's the only thing you know, so it just seems totally normal to you. Um, I just, I just went to my 25th year college reunion and I was on, a, on an office panel there and I was talking a little bit about growing up in my in my house and um, getting cross-examined. I mean, yeah, well, my my father did it. Like he did. I mean, he was a he died a couple of years ago and uh, oh, he sorry. was a really he was yeah. I mean, he was he but he he was quite old and he was 92 at the time, so he lived a good life. And he um and I he he was a great guy, um but he certainly. He presided over the family dinner table like a law professor. I mean, a gentle and kind law professor, but he was a Socratic method kind of guy. And he would ask us all to rep- I have two, bro- two younger brothers. Uh, we're a total of three and a half years separate all three of us. We were packed in pretty close together. Um, and he, you know, we'd have to report in our day. And I remember when I was in 11th grade, and he, my father was very, very invested in my education. And when I was in 11th grade, he would come home from law school every day at dinner and when he would have a list of words that he claimed to have just happened to have come across during the course of the day and then these were words from my SATs and I remember the word quantum Q-U-O-N-D-A-M which means former or erstwhile it's a word I've never heard since then but I remember very distinctly from him coming home and quizzing me on that and um, I I I think in a lot of ways it's sort of hard to describe to people who are not from that world but my my grandfather in the Orthodox Jewish world was an extremely famous rabbi. I mean, I can still go to a synagogue anywhere in the world, to an Orthodox synagogue, and my last name gets me invited over to all sorts of places that I won't necessarily, <laughs> want, necessarily, won't necessarily want to be. You get to go backstage. Exactly, exactly. And my father in the law school world was quite well known also. And so I, I, I did feel like I grew up in their, in their shadows. And... You know, one thing that was interesting is that when I was a freshman at college, I, we, had to t- we all had to take expository writing, and one of, we had to choose among different bands, and one of the choices, you could take, I don't know, history, literature, social studies, etc. one of the choices was fiction writing, where you wrote papers about fiction, but you also wrote your own fiction. I remember saying to my father that that was one of the options. 
my father said to me, I wouldn't begin to know how to write a short story. And I thought, aha, that's what I'm going to do. <laughs> and I mean, it, it was a circuitous route. I ended up doing quite, I didn't go back to writing fiction until a few years after college. But in some deep way, I think that writing fiction allowed me you know, to be in that same world, but to sort of carve out my own territory. My father was a fiction reader, but I think he, you know, it, it was a very foreign world to him. And he was much more of a I always forget which is the left brain and the right brain, but he was—he was—he had the analytic brain, um, and this was really really an opportunity for me to do something something different. And then you said that he was an ortho—he was an Orthodox Jew. Well, he was. I mean, it was complicated. He, um, my grandfather was an Orthodox rabbi, and my father grew up in the Orthodox world and went to Yeshiva University for college, and he basically remained religiously observant throughout his life. But my mother, who is herself Jewish, grew up in a secular home. And so there are various compromises that they, you know, worked out when they had kids. We were raised in, uh, we were raised in, I guess, I guess you'd, you'd call it an Orthodox Jewish home. I went to Jewish day school. It was a Sabbath-observing home, but it was idiosyncratically so. My, my, my father's friends were all from the university, and although many of them were Jewish, most of them were secular. And so his, his Jewish observant life was kind of, a very important part of his life, but it was also a kind of parenthesis. And my mother, although she sort of compromised for him in terms of bringing us up, um, did not remain religiously, did not become religiously observant herself when she was on her own. So it was an eclectic home. Um, yeah, that's interesting. So that, you know, I was just, I was just uh, visiting with some friends where one of the, you know, the husband is uh, religiously observant and the wife is like a staunch atheist. And I found yep. that. I found that sort of, you know, I found that fascinating, like, you know, how that actually works and the way that they just and, sort of uh, let each other do their thing. You know? And have they worked it out well? Yeah, no, they have. And it's just like it, the thing, the reason I think it fascinates me so much is that it just seems so fundamental, you know, like their, their, percep <laughs> their perceptions of like the, you know, the biggest questions or whatever are, are totally at odds with one another. But they do, um, you know, they find a way to, to, to sort of coexist and, and, and it works. Yeah, it's know. amazing to me how, the, you know, yeah, I, mean, I have friends who have similar kinds of situations. And I mean, sometimes it really does work. Um, it totally depends on how important it is to you to have a partner who agrees with you about everything. And I think a lot of people, it's not that important. Yeah, no, I mean, that, that's a, and frankly, that's sort of a, uh, that's a pretty tough uh, agenda to be, uh, you know, trying to adhere to going into a relationship, you know? <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Um, but my, parents had, my parents had a great marriage, and I think, you know, there was tremendous respect between them, and I think on some of that's what's really most important. Well, and then what about, what about the relationship that you had with your brothers? I mean, you're all very close in age. Um, you know, your parents are both very accomplished and, you know, like you said, very invested in your education. Uh, was there a lot of competition among your brothers? Like, a, like this is where I'm, I'm, I'm now obviously leaping <laughs> in my imagination. Like, it's like the Emmanuel family. Like, I, I see all of you guys as being very uh -huh, successful uh -huh. guys. Is it like that? Um, my brother's a history professor at Berkeley, uh -huh. um, my middle brother. Uh, my youngest brother is also a teacher. He teaches music. Um, and, well, I think it's complicated. I mean, we all get along well. Um, was there competition? Sure, absolutely. And I see that in my, I have two daughters now, and I see that in my daughters, you know, are close in age. Um, but I mean, I, I think, I feel like it, it was, it, it was and is a warm family. And, um, I mean, there was no one in our family, there, there was no relationship in our family that was, that's similar, say, to the relationship between Lily and Noel in the book. I mean, I think that it, there's a lot more bad blood among the sisters. Uh, in, in the world without you than there was 
uh, in my family. But sure, you know, we were boys growing up, and you know, we were all in high school at the same time. So absolutely. Yeah. No. And where were you in the pecking order again? Were you? you were I was. The, I was the first. I okay. was the oldest. So you sort of had. You sort of got to dominate a little bit in high school. A little bit, certainly. <laughs> you're so modest. I mean, you'll, 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 have, you'll have to interview my brothers to see what they say. But yeah. if you're interviewing me, I'll, I'll say sure. Well, yeah, we're actually gonna we're actually gonna pipe them in right now. <laughs> it sounds good. Um, so yeah, and then it's you know this is a natural place to sort of transition to talking about the book because family mm-hmm. is at the center of the book, um, right. you know. And I'm interested in hearing you talk a little bit about how you came to write it. You know, like what sure. is it um, that led you to the book, and then how do you uh, you, you know, how much uh, of it is autobiographical? You know, like, uh, it's, it's kind of yep. a, a no-brainer question, but... No, but it's, a, but it's a totally reasonable question, and it's what everyone asks, and that's, that's fair enough. Uh, so let, I'll start with that. Um, I would say, like, in the, in, at least in the superficial sense, and even in a somewhat deeper sense, very little of it is autobiographical. I mean, you know, it's my third novel, and I would say that my books have gotten progressively less autobiographical as they've gone along. And my first one was the most autobiographical, The Matrimony, which is the second most, and this is... Can I, can I, and can I yep. ask you a question about that? Because like yep. I, I feel like uh, you know my first book, um, you know, was, was definitely uh, autobiographical, and then mm-hmm. my second book I'm, I'm working on right now, and I'm trying right. to like push away from myself a little bit. Mm-hmm. Is that like a? Do you feel like that's a natural thing? Do you feel like there's some some? Do you think that, that it's more accomplished? Uh, a book is more right. accomplished when, an, when a writer of fiction has actually made it a, a full work of the imagination, or do you think that? Mm. It's hard to say. Yeah. I mean, I, I wouldn't want to generalize in that way just because, I mean, there, there's some deeply autobiographical books that I think are amazing. And then, I mean, I think there's always a tension. And um, it totally depends on, well, I guess I, I talk about this a lot with my students because um, I think that the, the first writing workshop I was in as a student years ago, there was a woman in my class who wrote a story that was transparently autobiographical about her breakup with her first boyfriend. But it was actually a much better story than that makes it sound like. And we all said what we thought was good about it, and then we all kind of agreed there was one scene that wasn't working. And when it was her turn to talk, she said, well, you know, that scene that you thought wasn't working, That's true. it actually happened. <laughs> yeah, right. You know, and, and, and the, the appropriate response to that is, you know, a kind version of who cares? So what? That, you know, I mean, I think that fiction is about getting at a deeper kind of truth. Um, and so... I do think there are dangers of autobiographical writing that if you are so concerned about fidelity to actual truth that you won't get, you won't be able to get at that deeper kind of truth. On the other hand, I think that I think that everyone should be writing in ways that are emotionally autobiographical. That if you're not on the line, if there if there's not some sort of risk, then this stuff is not going to be heartfelt. I, I actually I always tell my students to err on the side of writing closer to home. And I think it was Ron Carlson who said, um, I always write from experience whether or not I had them. And I said, I think in, in that sense, you always want to be writing close to home. Um, I guess I, I, I think what happens more is that probably with people's first books, you know, they've been percolating for a long time. And so people have that first book to write, and it often seems to come from their own experience, and then they start to, to branch out. I actually think it's easier to write in ways that are not autobiographical, that there's something confining... Um, about uh, about the actual experience, and so I just find it easier. But I'd be hesitant to say that you know that one is better than the other. I think you know you just I mean there are different kinds of books. Yeah, I guess I just feel like I'm I'm sort of pushing myself. You know, if I'm uh, I, I feel like I feel like there's something in me that says 
try to try to use your imagination more. I don't know. Absolutely. Why, I don't know why I do that to myself. Maybe it doesn't Absolutely. matter, you know, but I feel like there's some well, sort of internal pressure headed, you know, pushing me in that direction. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, you know, I think, I think even if you are writing about yourself, you should be, I mean, people, the writer, a writer should be using his or her imagination. I mean, you know, you, you write something that's true, but you cast a different light and become something completely different. I don't know. I mean, you know, I, I, you know, Flannery O'Connor said anyone who's lived until the age of 10 is enough material to write about for a lifetime. And I don't think she's advocating writing narrowly autobiographical material. I think she's just saying that our own lives are worth mi- mining in some way. And I actually think that, I think the fear of autobiography generates more bad writing than autobiography, by which I mean, I think there are so many, there are a lot of books out there where people are, where it's clear the writer is too worried that he or she doesn't have enough that's interesting to say, and so they rely on all sorts of sort of pyrotechnics that really don't don't do much for the book. And I think that I think you know if you if you're true to your characters and if you have a story to tell and if you're willing to go deep, um, then, then then the book will, then the book will take off. So I, on some level, I worry I worry more about writers who are trying too hard not to be autobiographical. That I think that you know. Well, and it's almost that there are only two kinds of stories. Stranger comes to town and person goes on a trip, you know, which is really one kind of story because stranger comes to town, you know, this person goes on a trip from a different point of view. And, you know, I mean, you could say, well, you could say King Lear. What a, you know, what a boring story. His father has to decide, you know, which of his daughters to give his inheritance to, and that's boring. But if it's well done, it's well done. If it's badly done, then no matter how interesting the story is, um, it's going to suck. So I tend to think that it's all about the execution. Yeah, yeah. And so with this uh, with this new book of yours, like, where did do you have like a, you know, a seedling for it in your own life? Like, can you trace it to something in your own? Yeah, I did. Although it's you know, it, it's a very it is a seedling for my own life, but but distantly so. Um, I had a cousin who died of Hodgkin's disease when he was in his late twenties. I was a to- I was a toddler at the to- at the time. Our, the generations of my family are all skewed, um, and so I never knew him. But um, his death sort of hung over the family, and my, he was on my father's side of the family. And we had a family reunion once a year where that side of the family would get together and we'd all catch each other up on what had been going on. And but when I was in my early 30s, my cousin's mother, my aunt, started out by catching us up by saying, I have two sons. And it was kind of an eerie moment because she had had two sons, but one of them had died almost 30 years before. And I think... I mean, she was a difficult woman, but she wasn't crazy, and I think she was saying that you know that was where everything began and ended, and that she was never going to get over that. And her daughter-in-law, my cousin's wife, uh, and after he died, eventually moved on, got remarried, started a family, and it was very, very hard for my aunt. And you know, they throughout the rest of her life, they had a very tense relationship. And I was always struck by that gap between what it's like you know, for a spouse to lose a spouse and what it's like for a parent to lose a child, lose a child. And a spouse gets past that usually eventually and a parent never gets over it. And so the inspiration for the book was on some level that, you know, it started out on somewhat in my mind having to do with the, the tension between Marilyn and Thisbe. You know, Marilyn is Leo's mother and Thisbe is Leo's widow and Thisbe is moving on and Marilyn is never going to move on. And so that was the original seedling for the book. Uh, but then as I started to write, all these sisters came into play, and I realized that the book... I, mean, I think I originally conceived of the book with Fisbee as a central character. And I, now I'd say that you know she is a central character, but she's not the central character. And I'd say the book 
um, is really a, a book without a central protagonist. It's a, it's a collective kind of book. You know, it's a, it's a family saga. And as I started to write those sisters, I realized that the book was really about all of them. So that was a seedling in terms of sort of the, you know, the content of the book, for lack of a better way of putting it. I would say there was also an aesthetic seedling, and that is that matrimony took place uh, over t- the course of 20 years, and you're in two points of view. And I want, yeah, I think of a lot of books as being like a lot of relationships. They're, they're kind of rebounds from the previous relationship, and this felt like a rebound from the pre- previous book. And I wanted to write a different kind of book, and I'm interested in time and fiction. And so I wanted to write a book that was at once sort of more compressed, you know, the last book was 20 years of time, and this year was three days of time, but also more sprawling. Uh, Matrimony was in two points of view, and this one is in, I don't know, seven, eight, nine, in a lot of points of view. And I, I reread certain books. I reread Richard Ford's Independence Day, which is in a single point of view, but it is over a single July 4th holiday, um, told, in the, you know, told over three days in present tense. Um, I looked at Rick Moody's The Ice Storm again, which is another sort of compressed time that takes place over 48 hours over a Thanksgiving holiday, also a family saga. So I think they're both in, uh, both sort of inspirations in terms of the substance of the book and also aesthetic inspirations. And that sort of over time is how the book came together. But I never know where I'm going uh, with the book. I mean, it's always that first draft, you, you, know, you proceed totally blindly and you, you, know, you see where the book takes you. That's how you do it. You, you do not outline or anything like that. You're just working day by day, making it up as you go along. Absolutely not. And I, and I, think, I think that is the real challenge for the novelist. Is, and I think that that's what you gain with experience, is, it, is the ability to allow there to be mess. And I feel like it takes two years not to, to see whether it's going to be any good or whether it's going to be a novel at all. And you know, once you've done it a couple of times, you know that you, you, you're able. I mean, I threw out 3,000 pages of matrimony. I probably threw out about 1,500 pages this time. And I think that I think you have to be willing to seek control. I mean, once I have that first draft and then I go back and try to figure out where the book is, you know, then I should, you know, start to outline and start to see what makes sense and what doesn't make sense. Um, but for the first draft, I think it's terrible to outline. I think you really have to let, let your unconscious take over. And not everyone's able to do that. I think for a lot, there are a lot of very smart people who are not able to seed control. And I think that that can be the death of the writer. Okay, so how do you seed control? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, That's a good question. I mean, I think, you know, it was a little easier with this book because it was a three-day period. And so even as I was seeding control, I had some sense of somewhere where I was heading. I knew there was a memorial. I knew that there was a son who died. I mean, I knew certain things. Although I can tell you that the the final draft is so different from the first draft. I mean, you know, it'd be unrecognizable. I mean, the first draft, Marilyn and David weren't even splitting up. Uh, is the, uh, Leo's friend Jules, who shows up at the at the memorial and is, is there for half a page, is a major character in an early draft, and there are 300 pages of you know, scenes with him. So I don't know. I, mean, I do think fairly analytically, so I have I've trusted myself to be able to figure out you know how to make order from the mess. But um, yeah, I think you just have to. I think the way you do it is you you don't think of yourself as writing a novel. You think of yourself as writing a you know a page a day, two pages a day, however many pages you write a day. And then those pages accrue over time. But I think that um I think you have to just just write and see where it takes you. Um and I mean I guess not everyone is good at doing that. But I think it's a really important skill in a writer. I I also I have terrible handwriting and that's very helpful to me because I I write my first draft by hand. And I I because I'm very compulsive on the, on the level of the sentence, and my inclination is to revise 
because they go along, but I think that's a real problem for a novelist because it's sort of like, it's like you're building a house and you're playing with the ornamentation on the doorpost before you actually have the foundation. And I think if you, for me at least, if I type the first draft in on computer because it looks neat on the screen, I feel much more compelled to try to make it neat in a deeper way, but because I have terrible handwriting when I write it by hand, because it looks so sloppy when I'm actually writing it, there's no illusion that it's neat in a deeper sort of way, and that allows me to psych myself out and move forward. But different people do it differently, um, and there are, you know, there are some writers who who map things out. I just I just don't know how I could do that and be true to my characters because I feel like if I'm mapping things out, I'm not allowing for a kind of surprise. And I think you need. I mean, I think you, I think if you map your things out, you get what a friend of mine calls Lipton Cup of Story, where you're basically injecting your characters into a preordained plot. And for me, the relationship between narrative and character is complex and symbiotic. I mean, like our, as is true with our own lives, we both create our stories and are created by them. And I think if we're too convinced that our characters are going to do something, that we don't allow them to have a kind of autonomy, which isn't to say that you can't have certain. I, mean, I think it's fine to write with certain goals in mind. I tend to think I know. I'm, I don't think it's a problem to think you know where you're going. I just think you have to be wrong. Um, but if it helps the writer to have some sense of where he or she is going, that, that, that's great. You just have to be flexible. Well, and, you, and when you talk about throwing away, you know, fifteen hundred, three thousand pages, like you must be fairly prolific, or you, or, I, or you write big. I mean, you know, what I'm saying these are three, these are three thousand handwritten pages you're, you're tossing out. No, they're, well, actually, they're actually. I mean, they're ultimately. I know I'm really talking 3,000 typewritten. I mean, because what I do is I write it by hand and then I type it in, and that's the revision process. So I know I would say I threw out 3,000 type pages in matrimony and 1,500 in in uh, the world without you. I, you know, it's like people people are kind of amazed by that, and I kind of feel like that's just part of the process. And um, that's a lot. I don't of pages. know. I mean, that's a lot of pages. I mean, like it that's... is, but you know, I just kind of feel like it's. Part, I mean, it's like sunk co- what economists call sunk costs. It's like once I, I mean, I wouldn't. If you told me I was going to throw out those three thousand pages before I wrote them, it'd be hard to write. Or if, you know, if you told me that it was going to take me ten years to write the book, you know, the right match my this one only took me five years, but it might be hard to sit hard to sit down. But you don't know it's going to take you ten years until you're done with those ten years, and at that point, you kind of feel like, well, I have to be doing something with those ten years. So, I, I, I'm actually really happy to to throw stuff out. I like revise. I hate first draft. I really can't stand it. But I like revising. And um, I, I, I don't have that kind of problem throwing stuff out. It just seems to me it's part of the process. Like you have to write a lot of shitty stuff in order to write good stuff. Um, yeah, it's, and, it's, it's, it well, and it's nice to just have something. Like when you have an actual big first draft, <laughs> however messy it is, it, it's better than just staring at that blank page. <laughs> I totally agree. That's what I like about revision is that no matter how shitty it is, it's still you're working from something. I mean, as opposed to when you're working from nothing, that I find really scary. I mean, I just sort of have to hold my nose and just push through and get to the end of that first draft. And then, then I find the revision is the reward for that first draft. Well, and, and not to keep, like, uh, you know, uh, beating this drum too much, but, like, when you're doing a first draft and you're letting yourself, uh, you know, you're, you're seeding control, as you say, um, like how permissive are you with yourself? Like if you're in the middle of writing a section and you hit some sort of block or you're not exactly sure what happens, do you just press on? Like just is so when you get to the, you know, to the, I do, you know, I'm a, I, I keep a, I, I keep a, cal- I have a, a calendar. I keep a very close, close tabs on how much I write every day. Like I, down to the minute. So I mean, I, I, what's I, the, I don't want the metric. If you're writing by hand, you're doing it by time or pages. Always time. I'm not about pages. 
it's about, for me, it's about putting in the time. And I, I, you know, I, I have this competition with my graduate students because we have a long winter break. So last year over winter break, we had a seven-week winter break. I had, we did this pizza contest where um, we all kept track of how, my, how much time we wrote. Um, and the person who, uh, uh, who, had the, uh, who had the most hours got, got, got a pizza. And I, I, I wasn't eligible for a pizza, but I won. And I gave my students a hard time because I, you know, I, I, have, I have a wife and two kids and a job, and they, most of them don't have spouses or kids or, or jobs, and they, they should have written more than I did. But I was trying to show them that you have to put in the time. So, yeah, I, I mean, I kind of feel like, you know, during the academic year when I'm teaching, I shoot for I shoot for three, three and a half hours a day, five days a week. And then during vacations, um, you know, I can go seven, eight hours. It's, 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 you know, it's very hard for me to do that kind of time with first draft. But if I have the time with revision, I can sit for 10 hours. For first draft, three hours gets very tiring. But I force myself to do it. Um, but in terms of how loose I am with myself in other ways, I'm not that loose with myself, by which I mean, like, I don't, there are people who, well, you know, if, if a scene sucks, they'll say, okay, I'm going to go write a different scene from, you know, five chapters later. I, I can't do that. I mean, I'm often wrong. I always have to write in order. I'm, off, I'm often wrong in the sense that it may turn out that the first chapter does not end up being the first chapter and the fourth chapter is the first chapter. But I don't, but I have to think that I'm writing the first chapter and the second chapter and the third chapter. I have to, there needs to be kind of causal sequential logic to the work. And so I'm, I'm, I don't write in this kind of pastiche sort of way of, you know, I'll write this scene and then I'll write that scene because the, the scenes have to, have to flow one from each other. Now, again, I'm often wrong about how the flow is going to be, but I have to feel that flow when I'm writing. And I do have, a, actually, I do have a pretty analytic mind. I mean, I think, you know, the rabbi and law professor in my genes and in my heritage um, has had a strong influence on me. And so, I, you know, I mean, I, I have friends who are who are very good writers who wouldn't begin to know how to teach because they are much more naturally intuitive writers than I am. Where I, I really went through the opposite process. That, you know, I always wanted to write, but you know, I also always wanted to be a basketball player and at some point you realize, you know, you're not, you know, good enough or tall enough. And I basically thought I couldn't do it. And then after I graduated from college, I was planning to go get a PhD in the humanities. I was doing a much more traditional academic path and I was living in Berkeley at the time and I was working for a magazine and one of the things I was doing was I was reading the fiction submissions and I saw how much shitty stuff was being submitted and I didn't Which magazine was it? It's called Tikkun Magazine. It's a sort of a it's it's in Northern California. It's kind of a liberal Jewish cultural journal. They had some good fiction. You know, Francine Prose wrote for us back then. It's a a complicated magazine. I, I, I was ambivalent about it but it they were doing some interesting stuff, and the fiction I thought at the time was good. I don't think they do much fiction now. It's been, it's been 20 years since I was, I've done this. Um, but um, I was, one of the things I was doing was reading the fiction submissions, and I saw how much serious stuff was being submitted. And I didn't necessarily think I could do any better, but I felt inspired. I thought if other people were willing to try and risk failure, then I should be willing to do that too. And, um, and I started to take some workshops, and I got some encouragement. But um, I really came at writing as a critic. In other words, as I said before, I, I have friends who just they do things very intuitively, whereas I early on had a good sense of what wasn't working in other people's stories, but it took me a while to make it work in my own story. So I had to teach myself how to become a more intuitive writer. So for me, teaching is actually a really essential part of my writing process. And I'm a relatively social person, so it's fun to you know, have students and colleagues around to talk with. But just beyond that, I feel like figuring out what's not working in other people's 
stories helped me figure out what's not working in my own stories. And so, I mean, there's some people who feel like teaching really taints them, and I feel the opposite. I feel like teaching is, you know, is a real lifeline for me. Yeah, I was gonna, that was actually one of the questions I wanted to ask you, you know, but you, you've answered it. It's just like, because I've taught myself, and I feel like in addition to like seeing what doesn't work, for, you know, in other people's fiction, uh, and then trying to, uh, you know, uh, either address that directly or at least imagine it in private, like how to actually fix it. Um, mm-hmm. I find that there's something really, uh, there, there, there was something really energizing about being around, um, you know, creative people, period, you know, like, Absolutely. uh, I find that there's some juice there, you know, and, and I guess other people find that it's totally draining. No, yeah. And I, I totally agree with you. I mean, and that was sort of my experience. Like, I, I mean, I went to Harvard for college and I you know, was around a lot of smart people and I moved to California and I was around a lot of smart people there too, but none of my friends were writers. And one of the things that I think one of the reasons I went to graduate school was to be around other writers and to be able to talk about that kind of stuff. Because, you know, if you're a more traditional academic, you know, you could talk about an idea you have with a colleague or with a friend and you can have a coherent conversation, but you can't talk about an idea you have for fiction. I mean, I don't know. I mean, I just think it's bullshit. I mean, fiction, at least the kind of fiction that I write is not principally about ideas. It's very character-driven. And, you know, there's really nothing to talk about until you have a text in front of you. But once you have a text in front of you, there's a lot to talk about. And so I think there's really no, if you really want to be able to talk about your work uh, or talk about other people's work, there's no substitute for actually, you know, being in a room with 10 or 11 other people who are, with all of you having read the same story and having, you know, things to talk about. And I'm, I'm particularly fortunate because, I mean, at Brooklyn we have, I, mean, I just teach graduate students. Um, and we have, in a typical year, we have 500 applicants for 15 spots. So we're really talking about some incredibly talented students. I mean, you know, five of our recent graduates have gotten book contracts in the last few months alone. So, I mean, you know, you're, on some of us, it's a real privilege to be teaching these people. I mean, they're much better than I was when I was their age. And so, I mean, the, the, the level of discussion is quite high level. I mean, it's really, really quite astonishing at times. Well, but, you know, and the other thing, too, is that I find that, uh, you know, being able to critique is a is a talent and, and to talk about fiction. You know what I'm saying? And to address it, uh, you know, at, at all the various aesthetic levels or whatever. Like, that's that's a skill. Like, some people are really good at that, and some people who are quite good writers are not. You know, like, and so I kind of, I, you know, grading myself on that. Like, I think, like, I don't know. I feel like I'm somewhere, I'm, I'm kind of mid-tier, you know, and I feel like some people are just superb at reading someone's, you know, stuff and being able to, I always called it creative empathy because, you know, I right. think I think the, the tendency is for people to read someone's story and then try to think of how they would do it if they were the writer, right. as opposed to yep. ima- imagining the actual author's intent, you know. Right. I think, I think that's an important point. And that's, a, that's a very hard line to tell. I, mean, I think every writer has his or her strengths and weaknesses. And I mean, I would say, I would say just on a technical level, like I'm a good reviser. I. What makes I mean, you good? What I makes pretend. what makes you good? Um, I think it's two things. I think, or maybe three things. And the, the first thing relates to relates to teaching. I think I'm able to think analytically and step back and look at my work as if someone else wrote it. I think it's hard to do, and I think it's but I think it's easier to do with a novel when you can go back and look at stuff you haven't written for. Like if you're writing chapter 15 you haven't looked at chapter one for two years and i can look at chapter one as if i hadn't written it so i think i think having those critical skills is helpful i think also i think i'm really i mean it's not that i'm not sensitive to criticism i mean everyone is and yeah i mean if someone thinks your book sucks it hurts there's no question about that but 
I'm kind of a, I'm a bounce back kind of guy and I, and I'm pretty practical minded and I'm really not wedded to anything that I've done just because I've done it. I, I feel like I'm someone who can say, you know what? I wrote those 500 pages. That was the very idea of the book, but it's not working. And here's a perfect example. I mean, in both matrimony and, and the world without you, my editor wanted me to make some significant changes. And I thought that she was right, but I thought that in order to make the significant changes, I had to make even bigger changes that if I, if I did what she said, it would be kind of in this uncomfortable in between. And I had to convince my editor to allow me to have a go at doing some, doing these kind of radical revisions. Like with matrimony, the book she bought, I mean, I would say the book she bought only 10% of it was in the final draft. And with the world without you, I mean, I, the kind of revisions I did were, were just so huge. And as one example, I have a writer friend who's, who was at grad school with me and who has been incredibly helpful to me. And he was the one who convinced me that I needed to have Marilyn and David splitting up. Like in the original draft, they weren't splitting up. And he kind of said, well, you know, the book is sad, but I don't get what, I don't get what, I don't get what the tension is here. Like this guy died and everyone's sad, and a year later they're going together for his memorial, and they're still sad. Like, what's new? I mean, I guess Bisbee's moving on, but can we really expect her not to move on? What's the tension? He said to me, if Richard Bausch was writing this story, he would have the parents splitting up. Because Richard Bausch has this story called Aren't You Happy For Me that takes place on the telephone between a father and his daughter. It's a great story. And it's told from the father's perspective. And the father is the daughter is the father's in his early sixties. The daughter's in her twenties, early twenties maybe. And the father and mother are about to split up, and the father is about to tell the daughter this on the phone because the daughter is coming for a visit, for a visit. But the daughter preempts him because she has her news of her own, and the news is that she is pregnant and engaged to her professor who's many years older than she is. I mean, it sounds like a soap opera, but it's done very, very skillfully. Um, and my friend John Fulton said to me, if Bausch were doing this, he would have the parents putting up. And, and I just thought about it, thought, you know, he's totally right. And that would, and that changed the, the entire book as a result of that. But I think, I actually think, think that making big changes in terms of the fundamental assumptions of the book are easier than doing lots of little changes on the fly. That basically, you know, you want to, it's the foundation of your book that's key. And if you, those fundamental assumptions at the start of the book better be spot on. Otherwise, you know, the entire tree will be rotten. And I think I'm someone who's willing to sort of call into question the fundamental assumptions of my book. I just think it's a personality trait. You have a high, uh, you have I, a high pain tolerance. <laughs> I have a high pain, yeah, not for physical pain. It's interesting. Yeah, no. But for, you know, but, but for this kind of pain, I do. Psycho-spiritual psycho pain, you can handle I think so. <laughs> I, I, I think I do. I'm not sure why, but I, I think it's true. Well, I think it's practice, and I think it's also like, you know, it sounds to me like you're elevating um, uh, the fundamental concern about making sure that it's right over any uh, concern over how much you have to work at it or how much time you may have, quote-unquote, wasted writing 600 pages. Yeah, like because that. I actually, yeah. You know. And, uh, Absolutely. You know, and you, and because, you, because I... Good. No, I was just going to say, you do it You do it once or twice, and you see that it it ultimately bears good fruit, I think you're more willing to maybe do it again, you know? Absolutely. And I, you know, I mean, I, I think it's a privilege to do what I do. I mean, seriously, you know, what do I do in my life? You know, 
I teach people to write, and I write myself. I mean, how many people have the opportunity? I mean, I, I do think it's a real privilege to do that. And so I take that work seriously. And, you know, I want, I want the work to be the very best work it can be. I mean, you know, there's not enough money or awards in the world to make this worthwhile if it's not really about the work. And so, like, why rush things? I mean, you want, you know, you just, you just want the book to be the best book it can be. Right. I, I think I have, I think, I think any, I'm on, this, and this I'm certainly not unique by any stretch. But I think any writer worth his or her salt, you know, takes pride in their work. And I mean, I never, I never understand my students who, when they're sloppy. It's like, I feel like every fucking comma should be exactly right. Because if you're sloppy on a small level, you're sloppy on a, on a big level. I just, you know... I'm compulsive, and I think you have to be compulsive. I'm that way too. Like I have like a physical revulsion to like uh, usage errors, and you know that's definitely uh, the English teacher. Don't get me going. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> right. yep. Don't get me going. I start to like break out in a sweat. You know, it's just really yep. it's a yep. weird it's a weird thing with me. But um, let's talk a little bit about. I'm always curious to know about uh, you know where and um, you know where a writer works. Like, are you are you an at home writer, or do you go out into uh, like a library or a cafe or something? Like, how do you actually get this work done? And especially yeah. with, with a family and with all that you have going on um yeah um i mean we well, there's my wife and my wife is an academic and so she also works at home too um and so we we have an office where so we can work at home and when i'm revi- I actually i when i'm revising i like to work at home because i'm really able to focus and i with the, the printers here but when i'm doing first draft i get distracted by the internet and so I go to there's a place called the Brooklyn Writer Space. It's basically I just read to Carol, and I haven't learned the internet password there. And I, it, it's sort of it's it's where I go to in, to be away from the internet. Isn't it so, um, it's so interesting to me how important that is? And like I you know there's like a software now I forget the name of it, but you can actually I know you can you can you can disable your computer. Yeah, right? I mean the people have to actually do this to themselves just to be able to get oh, it done. You know. It's a, I know it's crazy, but I'm, I'm like I, you know I don't have an iPhone, and I don't have I don't have any sort of smartphone because I would be screwed if I did, and I'm I'm worried about what happens when it becomes socially unacceptable, not to have a smartphone, because I don't know that would be the, that would be the end of me. So yep. Um, well, it's I, it's I, interesting to hear you say that because it's like you know I uh, I remember when I was working on my first book for a long time I didn't have a television. And people would say, man, you hate television. You think you're better than television? I was like, no, I love television. Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I was like, it's, you, a, it's, a, it's self-knowledge. You be yourself. Yeah, yes. absolutely. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and you know what? I, I wanted to, I want to circle back because I forgot to make a point, um, you know, re- with regard to the revision and the big um, structural change that you made with regard to Marilyn and David. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the, that, that's their names, correct? The parents, split. Right, yep, yep, um, yep. you know, is that not only did it probably give your book a boost in terms of its emotional content and the, uh, you know, the, uh, the, the dramatic content of the book, but it also to me feels emotionally true. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, again, it's an interesting, uh, it's an interesting world to explore the way that grief, uh, often opens up these huge divides between people, even people in a family, uh, Absolutely. As opposed to bringing them together, because I think instinctively, uh, when something terrible like this happens, you would imagine that everybody, in, or you would like to imagine that everybody in a family would sort of, um, you know, immediately uh, unify and come together. But the truth is often quite different. And yeah. I'm wondering if, like, in the writing of this book, you came to any understanding of that. 
especially in the revision of it, when you got to the, this point where you actually, you know, uh, wrote yeah, the part about the parents splitting up. Like that's that's fascinating to me, and it's also really heartbreaking. And uh, you know, I actually have thought about this because you know, experiencing loss in my own life. Um, you know, I always think to myself, like, God, if if something terrible would ever happen, God forbid. Like, I hope that I would move towards the people I care about as opposed to away from them. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I mean, you you hope you would, but yeah, I mean. I mean, that change that I made, I mean, the reason I did it is because it, it felt totally emotionally true. I mean, you know, when, when my friend suggested it to me, it just, I mean, I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm, I've got a pretty strong will. So it's not like, you know, someone says to me to do it and I necessarily do it. I mean, I often don't listen to people, but I just thought that is totally right. So it felt true to me. I mean, I think the statistics that, I mean, that it's mentioned in one sentence in the book that some like 80, 80 to 90 percent of couples split up who who lose his child, and I could see that. I really could. I mean, you hope you hope it wouldn't happen to you. Um, but it, it's just, yeah, I, I think it's so, I, it, it made total emotional sense to me. And I mean, I mean, just what I learned about it, I, I, mean, I think you're always learning. I mean, I, I feel like, for me, fiction is completely about character. That it's about, you know, using language and narrative to explore character. And, my, you know, my goal in fiction is to, you know, I, I don't care whether my, whether my readers like my characters or not. I mean, it's not it's not a popularity contest. It's about like making them the characters seem complicated and human. And if at the end of the book they feel like they know the characters, you know, as well as they know the people in their own lives, then you know, then I've succeeded. And I think the only way to do that is to sort of is to really live inside your characters. And I think that's one of the challenges of being a writer is that I think you spend your days with imaginary people, but they are as real as and sometimes realer realer than the people in your own life. And then you have to, you know, go back to the people in your own life and separate from those characters. And I think any writer who's doing a good job, you know, is really experiencing what his or her characters are experiencing. So, you know, I, I couldn't reduce it to a single lesson, certainly, but I felt like I was living what they were living. Absolutely. It was well, terrifying. Yeah. Well, yeah. No, and it's like, you know, it's it sort of, I guess, another way of putting it would be like making sure that you go deeply into the story. And Absolutely. I'm constantly saying that to myself and then, you know, it's easy to say, but then what does that actually look like in practice? And for me, anyway, <laughs> it looks like sitting there staring at my computer screen um, and, yeah. th and thinking about it and spending time and like doing this weird, um, like present moment imaginative work or, you know, it's hard to actually articulate what it means to go deeply into a story, like what the actual physical act of that entails. But um, I think a lot of it just me means spending time letting your subconscious do the work that it needs to do so that you can put yourself there, you know, in, in that space with your characters. Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. And I, I that's what, you know, that's why I think, right. You know, trying to write every day is really important. I, and I tell this to, to my students. I mean, I tell this to anyone who will, you know, who wants to write, you know, if you have only an hour a week to write, I think it's better to spend 10 minutes a day, six days a week than it's spend an hour on a Saturday, because if you're writing every day, even if it's only for 10 minutes, then you're walking around with your characters, and so that when I go for a run, I end up, you know, thinking of things. Or when I'm, when I'm, I often find movement, you know, going for a run or driving or something like that, you know, gives me ideas for, or, just, or a line comes to me. So I just think there's something about putting in that time, and if it's day in and day out and doing it over and over again, then your characters are part of you, and they, you know, so whether you're staring at, at a blank screen or whatever it is you're doing, it's a way of living with your characters. Yeah. Well, uh, the, another thing I want to talk to you about before I let you go is I want to talk to, uh, a little bit about the uh, collision uh, between politics and fiction. 
And, you know, this book sort of uh, deftly uh, handles that because, uh, you know, the, the Leo's death uh, has at least a political element to it. It's not explicitly political, I guess you could say. But, right. you know, uh, there is that sort of hovering around in the background for all these characters because he's killed uh, over in Iraq. Right. And so, Absolutely. Uh, you know, can you talk a little bit about that? Because I think, like, you know, the... the these, you know, that topic and, uh, you know, people's political feelings, characters' political feelings are obviously um, f- full of emotion and there's a lot there to mine. But, um, you know, I think that there's also some danger as well, you know, from an authorial standpoint. I'd be interested to hear you speak about that a little bit. Yeah, I mean, there, I, there certainly is some danger, but I, I don't worry about it because that's not the way I approach it, by which I mean... <laughs> I, I read a review recently on, on, of the book on Goodreads, um, and it was a very positive review. And she, it, but the, the reviewer said, "I really love the book, despite the author's politics." And I thought, <laughs> I kind of thought, like, "What the fuck is she talking about?" I mean, I certainly do have strong, strong political opinions, but I, and you might be able to guess them, but only in, I think you can only guess them based on certain stereotypes of where people think. I come, you know, I come from, but I, I guess I would defy a reader to, to read the book and based on the book itself and not any outside assumptions about, you know, my own demographic, whatever, guess what my politics are. Because, and if, and if you, and if I, if you really feel you can from the book, then that's a failing of the book. Because I guess I feel like the kind of book that I write is a book that should, you know, should take all the characters seriously and, um, I mean, I, I feel like it's an indir- indirectly a political book, but it's really a, it's really a domestic drama. Like, I didn't set out to write a book about the Iraq War. I mean, I just ended up writing about it, characters who, you know, it, it happened that, they, that this is what they're engaged with. But I'm a big believer. Well, I guess I'm saying I, I'm I don't I'm not interested in ideas in fiction. And I mean, Flannery O'Connor also talks about this that she says that a writer needs a certain amount of stupidity. And I think that's true. Well, I, think, I, you know, got that, I got that. I got that. <laughs> yeah, I got it. I got it too. I, mean, I think I can. And if you don't have it, you just have to cultivate it. I, mean, I think for the second draft and third draft, you can start to get smart again. But in the first draft, you need that stupidity. And so, um, I, I guess I feel like, for me, it's all about character. And my character happened to have been a journalist in the war, and he happens to come from a political family, most of whom are sort of are lefties. But you know, Noel is become quite right wing and um i guess i kind of feel like if you're true to your characters and if you're not if you're if you're writing about the people and you're and you're giving them a fair shake and you're doing it honestly then whatever politics comes in it comes through the back door and it's the politics of the characters not 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 your politics and i kind of feel like i i see these stories sometimes in my student stories but i also, also see it in published work where you sort of feel the fiction is being driven by ideas, and you feel a little bit like the character is the vo- is the mouthpiece of the writer. And I don't think I mean I I guess I don't think that's true of this book. I I wouldn't even know which character would possibly be my mouthpiece. So I mean I, if you're saying that it's potentially dangerous in the sense that that it's the book is engaging with incendiary political issues, sure. I mean you know Iraq the Middle East. But that, to me, that's a good thing. But I don't think it's dangerous to write about that unless the book feels like it's a messagey book. 
Right. Um, I don't think this book feels like a messagey book. To the extent that it feels to a reader like a messagey book, then, then I have failed that reader. It, it is, I never, never, never am interested in writing a book that has any message. Yeah, like Messages for me, are, whenever I get going on that track, and I have in the past, it always winds up uh, weakening the, the story or weakening the writing in some way. Absolutely. John, you know, John Gardner, yeah, John Gardner, Gardner talked about that. I mean, he, I think he overstated it a little bit, but he basically said something to the effect of, you know, make sure your character never express, you know, makes an argument or expresses a strong opinion. If, and if, and if, if he or she does, make sure you disagree with it. I mean, I think he was being facetious, but I think he, it was his way of saying, do not use your characters as, you know, megaphones for you. And I, I think that's, that's hard for people. I think a lot of people want to use fiction as a way to let them know what they think. Let the, world, let, them, let the world know what they think. And my feeling is, if you want to let the world know what you think, then become a politician or a sociologist or a rabbi or a priest. But that's not what a fiction writer does. And certainly the kind of fiction writer I am. And I, I feel like, a, to me, the model is Tobias Wolff's This Boy's Life, which I know is a memoir, but it doesn't matter. I feel like that is a model of writing where you feel like the writer has gotten out of the way and that the characters are taking over. And I feel like, I mean, I, I know how much work it takes to make something feel like the writer gets out of the way, but that's my goal, is for you not to see me when you read my book. Um, and I think if, you, if, if I'm successful in that regard, then, you know, it doesn't matter what, what the political opinions of the book's characters are, because, I don't know, I mean, I, this is a, I've, I've talked to a lot of book groups, and this is, a, this is a, a conversation that comes up a lot. And one of the reasons I like to talk to book groups is I like to speak to not just you know, the cream of the crop university types. I want to go out there into the world and try to talk to people about how to read. And one of the things you see pretty often in book groups is as this kind of popularity contest that I was mentioning before, that people think like, I like this character to the extent, well, they just, I like a book to the extent that I like the characters. And I like the characters to the extent that they make the decisions that I make. Hmm. I kind of feel that that's not what fiction is about. That, um, the picture about getting outside of our own experiences. I mean, to me, like one of the pleasures of writing a book like this, and I would hope one of the pleasures of reading a book like this is take a character like Amram, who's someone you, yeah, I mean, he's a, he can be, a, he's really self-righteous, he's really aggrieved, he's kind of an unpleasant person, and I think you probably wouldn't want to spend half hour with him at a bar. But my hope is that he's sufficiently interesting that you want to spend time with him on the page. And I think that that's one of the pleasures of fiction is being able to enjoy spending time with people on the page whom you wouldn't enjoy spending time with in life. So one of my goals sort of when I talk to book groups, for instance, is to try to get them to broaden their idea of what makes for interesting fiction. And that, you know, it's okay to read a book where a character expresses an opinion that that person doesn't agree with. Um, So anyhow, I mean, I guess that's a long way of saying that I, I, the book doesn't feel that dangerous to me in that regard. And although it, uh, it, it is a political book in some sense, it's really a domestic drama mostly. And I, to, to me, that, that's one thing that interests me about the book. is because I th- And I think subconsciously this is what attracted me in part to writing about the Iraq War. Is, you know, on some level, it's like a huge thing in my life and in the lives of a lot of people I knew, you know, a huge thing politically. But for most of the people like me. I mean, we didn't know people who were killed in the war. We didn't know people who were fighting in the war. Well, yeah, I was going so to ask you about that. Like, the, you know, these, the, the, the Frankels are not, um, 
you know, the, the war has sort of come to visit them in a roundabout way, you know, and, and not in a way that they were expecting, you know. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a privilege people who, for whom, I mean, I, yeah, I think that, you know, and that, that's, I think that's a struggle for them. The book doesn't exactly address this directly, but, like, you know, I mean, who is there for Marilyn to commiserate with? I mean, mothers of, of veterans? I mean, she has nothing in common with mother, mothers of veterans. And so she's in this weird position of being the mother of someone who was killed in the war, but she's from this totally different place from most people who fought in the war. And she's kind of a snob. And so I think she, and she's, she was very opposed to the war. And so it makes, it makes her isolated and lonely. I think in some way that compounds her grief. But I was interested in the ways in which, as you're saying, the war comes to visit them as opposed to their coming to visit the war. What does it mean for people for whom, for whom under other circumstances the war would have been kind of abstract? Have it come coming home very directly. Well, uh, last question: What are you working on now, if anything, or are you, are you <laughs> focusing on the the rollout of this book? You know, do you, do you... Well, right now I'm focusing on the rollout. I mean, it's it's you know it's so fucking time consuming this kind of stuff these days. I mean, the things you have to do to help your book, um, and I, I mean I don't I don't resent it. It's it's, it's part of life. Um, but you know, every every day that I spend rolling out the book, I don't spend writing. So I, I, I've been on teaching leave this year. So I, I, during the fall, I wrote several, I wrote first drafts of several short stories. I mean, I haven't written stories in a long time, and I love stories. And I'm, I have an idea for a new novel. I, well, I don't really think in terms of ideas, but I have something for a new novel percolating around inside of me, but I don't see it. I still haven't quite gotten to the point where I, I feel ready to sit down and write yet. And I don't think that's going to I'm going on this long book tour, and I don't think it's going to happen until I'm done with that. And then I'm gonna to have to teach again in the fall. So who knows? What, but I but I I do plan to write another novel, and I do want to revise some of those stories. But uh, I was hoping to be further along with those things than I am. I think you know there's a good reason for writers to want to be. You know, you sort of harden yourself to sort of make a lot of luck in terms of what reviews are like. And if you are onto your next book, that makes it easier to to deal with that. Um, and I'm not enough onto my next book yet. But that's just that's just how it is, unfortunately. Well, I wish all the best of luck with this one, and uh, Thanks, Brad. you know, enjoy the tour, and then you know, <laughs> hopefully, when it's all said and done, you'll be able to get back into the swing. I hope so. I hope so. You, are you in Los Angeles itself? Uh, yeah, right in the. All right, I'll, I'll be at I'll be at, at Skylight Books in in July. So, if you're around, maybe we can get coffee or something like that to, to touch base or something. I'd love that. Sounds good. It was great talking with you, Josh. Good to talk to you. Okay, folks, there you have it. That's the program. That's Joshua Hankin for the hour. Go get his new novel. It is called The World Without You. It is out there from Pantheon. You can find him on Facebook. You can find him on the Twitter at Joshua Hankin, and his website address is joshuahankin.com. This show has a website. It's otherpeoplepod.com. It has a Twitter feed at otherpeoplepod. I'm on Twitter at Brad Listy. The show has a Facebook page, and if you want to email me, the address is letters at otherpeoplepod.com. Also, you do realize you can subscribe to this program for free at iTunes, correct? Uh, it's there. It's free. Uh, it's also at Stitcher. If you're a Stitcher person, uh, you can subscribe for free there as well. So uh, what's the recurring theme? It's all free. And if you haven't done that yet, please go do that. Thank you to Kill Rockstars for all the great music. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. And thanks once again to the UCLA Extension Writers Program. That is today's sponsor. If you're working on a book, whether it's a novel or a collection of short stories or a screenplay of some sort, and you want some instruction or you want some structure, some enforced discipline, some help, some camaraderie, go sign up for a class you can attend right here in Los Angeles in person or remotely via the Internet. 
Either way is just fine, and there's no time like right now to get started. For more information, please call 310-825-9415. That's 310-825-9415. You can also visit them on the web at uclaextension.edu slash writers, or check them out on Facebook and the Twitter. Uh, Okay, I think that's it. I think I've had enough. I think I'm going to go take a walk, get some air, perhaps do uh, some stretching. Please remember that Shakespeare became a grandfather at age 43, and Wittgenstein almost never wore a necktie. Thank you for listening, folks. I appreciate it, as always. Thank you for spreading the word. I will be back again soon. In the meantime, uh, please remember that I love you.